Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized today's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Ben Steele, the author of The Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War. Um, gratefully, in, in the uh, second visit to San Francisco, we've squeezed in his uh, speech um, on, on a book that has been really uh, getting a lot of attention for the historical um, analysis of maybe one of the highlights of American foreign policy over the last 100 years. Ben, thanks a lot for coming. Thank you, George, and the Commonwealth Club for having me. And of course, thank you all for coming out on a Friday afternoon. Uh, the Marshall Plan celebrated its 70th anniversary last year, and perhaps its most enduring legacy has been the endless desire to repeat it. Uh, in the past few years alone, there have been impassioned calls for new Marshall Plans in Ukraine, in Greece, in Southern Europe, in North Africa, in Gaza, and most recently in Syria. But the old original one has never been replicated or even badly imitated. And I think that speaks to the unique historical circumstances in place at the time the Marshall Plan was created. In uh, 1948, the United States dominated the globe uh, economically and militarily like never before and never since. We accounted for over half the world's manufacturing output and we had sole possession of atomic weapons. We could have used that dominance had we wished to pursue a foreign policy of, say, America first, but we didn't. Uh, memories of the uh, disasters of isolationism in the 1930s were fresh. And so um, the United States decided instead uh, to devote enormous sums to foreign relief and reconstruction aid, even in the two-year run-up to the Marshall Plan. And of course, we created a host of new multilateral institutions to promote international cooperation. It's quite remarkable to consider that all of the institutions that we associate today with the post-war liberal order were created by the United States in just a few short years after World War II. The United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank, NATO, and the predecessor organizations to the um, European Union and the World Trade Organization were all created by the United States between 1945 and 1949. And importantly for my story, two of these institutions, the European Union and NATO, would not exist today were it not for the Marshall Plan. Now that might sound very surprising to you all, given that our president constantly reassures us that the EU was created to quote unquote, screw the US on trade. But in fact, the integration of um, Western Europe economically, politically, and eventually militarily was actually the first major component of the new uh, American geostrategy after the war, fathered by the famous American diplomat George Kennan, of quote unquote, containing the Soviet Union. And to understand why, we've got to go back um, to the war years. Um, during the Second World War, of course, the United States and the Soviet Union were allies in the fight against Nazi Germany. But as Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin wryly observed uh, in 1943 at the Tehran Allied War Leaders Conference, quote unquote, the best friendships are founded on misunderstandings. <laughs> and indeed, the misunderstandings between the United States and the Soviet Union were profound. Um, FDR believed or wanted desperately to believe that after the war, the Soviet Union would effectively contain itself. That is, that Stalin would be content with his, within his newly expanded borders. Stalin, for his part, believed that after the war, the Americans would go home, just as they had after World War I. Uh, but this glorious misunderstanding began collapsing almost immediately after the fighting ended in, war, in Europe in May of 1945. In um, 1946, Stalin begins pursuing new territorial claims, for example, in Turkey. He refuses to withdraw Soviet troops from northern Iran, troops that had been stationed there under treaty during the war, and he only backs down the watershed moment actually comes in February, February of uh, 1947, 
when the British ambassador comes to the State Department and effectively hands us the keys to the Imperial Kingdom. Um, the British announce that they are effectively bankrupt. Um, they can no longer fulfill their security obligations um, around the world. Um, and they are going to immediately begin withdrawing their 40,000 troops from Greece, where they were protecting the Greek government against communist rebels. Greeks, Greece was in the midst of a, a brutal um, civil war at this point. This set off alarm bells within the State Department. Um, Dean Acheson, in particular, who was General Marshall's um, uh, deputy under Secretary of State, um, uh, believed strongly that if the United States didn't rush to fill the vacuum being created by Britain's imperial implosion, that the Soviet Union would do that. Um, but by this time, Stalin had already begun shifting his sights away from the Mediterranean and towards his priority, which was um, Central Europe and one country in particular, and that is Germany. Uh, after the war, uh, Germany was divided into four zones of occupation. In the west, the French, British, and American zones. In the east, the Soviet zone. And Berlin, um, which of course was located in the Soviet sector in the east, was a, a mirror image divided into four zones of occupation. So in March of 1947, General Marshall's been Secretary of State for a little more than two months. He goes off to Moscow for his most important um, diplomatic um, mission. Um, he spends six weeks in Moscow negotiating with his Soviet counterpart, who you will see a second from the right, Vyacheslav Molotov. He is accompanied by the um, British Foreign Secretary, who you see on the left, Ernest Bevin. And on the right, uh, French Foreign Minister Georges um, Bideau. Um, and their aim is to negotiate uh, the foundations of a peace treaty with Germany that will allow them to end the occupation, withdraw their um, troops. Uh, but some pretty funda fundamental issues divide them. There was one very important narrow issue, and that was that the Soviets were demanding $10 billion in reparations from Western Germany. That's about $110 billion in today's money. Uh, General Marshall made clear that that was totally unacceptable. Uh, the United States had effectively financed Germany's reparations after World War I, and they weren't about to do it again. That is, Western Germany was far from self-sufficient at this point. Indeed, it was on the border of uh, uh, anarchy and starvation, and it was only being kept alive by the United States. So that would have effectively been the United States paying reparations to the Soviet Union. But there was a more fundamental issue that divided the um, two countries that uh, General Marshall could not bridge with um, Joseph Stalin in his last meeting in Moscow in April of 1947. And that is that neither the United States nor the Soviet Union could afford to have a unified Germany as an ally of the other. So General Marshall goes home in April of 1947, convinced that um, Stalin is more than happy to see Western Germany sink into chaos and disorder and to drag down all of Western Europe um, with it. And he makes a very important decision. Um, he goes on the radio and addresses the nation and says, quote unquote, the patient is sinking while the doctors deliberate. That was his way of saying it is time for the United States to defend its interest in Europe unilaterally we were abandoning the so-called Yalta-Potsdam framework for cooperation with the Soviet Union. Now, while General Marshall was in Moscow, President Truman was making his famous so-called Truman Doctrine speech. Now, this was seen as um, being um, uh, quite hard line. Even the State Department was uh, uncomfortable with um, some of the rhetoric in the speech. But it's important to recognize that it actually foreshadows a number of the important ideas that became the basis of the Marshall Plan. First, um, Truman pledges to assist countries facing, quote unquote, aggressive movements that seek to impose upon them 
totalitarian regimes. He's referring, of course, to the Soviet Union. And he stresses that it is, quote unquote, economic and financial aid that is essential to economic stabilization and orderly political processes. That is not emphasizing military aid, but economic and financial aid. Why is he doing that? Again, go back to the end of the fighting in Europe in May of 1945. There are over 3 million American troops in Europe. FDR had pledged openly um, at Tehran in 1943 to withdraw all American troops from Europe within two years of the end of the fighting. Um, Truman had been president for all of a few weeks and at this point certainly had no intention of uh, overturning the foreign policy architecture that had been handed down to him by FDR and he begins um, withdrawing these um, troops. Um, by 1946, the American military and foreign policy establishment realizes that they have enormous problem uh, on their hands because, as I explained, Stalin was not uh, satisfied with his newly expanded borders. The, the question became, how would the U.S. defend its vital economic and security interest in Europe without having to rely on the military because there was no way the American public was going to tolerate a, a lengthy, expensive uh, occupation of um, Europe. So effectively, they were looking for forms of asymmetric warfare to fight against the Soviets. In other words, clever ways um, to challenge the Soviet conventional military dominance in Europe. Now, we all, of course, know that the best policy ideas normally come from economists. But in this particular case, this rare case, um, the ideas that became the Marshall Plan actually came from the military establishment. Um, people like uh, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, uh, Army Secretary Kenneth Royal, Navy Secretary, later Defense Secretary Jim Forrestal, who was a hawk's hawk. This was not a man who was looking for a kumbaya moment to spread love and aid around the world. But even Forrestal went before Congress and argued that the martial aid was, quote unquote, far less expensive than standing isolated and alone in an unfriendly world. So the underlying philosophy behind what became the Marshall Plan was that America's economic and physical security depended on it having strong independent allies abroad. That is not colonies like the Europeans had had, not vassals, not tributaries, but strong independent allies who could defend themselves, not just their external borders, but to defend the integrity of their own political systems. The United States was particularly concerned at this point about France and Italy, where the um, national communist parties were very powerful. Uh, both of, in both countries, the communists were part of coalition governments until May of 1947, um, uh, at which point they were kicked out of these coalitions under pressure from the um, United States. This became the philosophy behind the plan. So who are the architects um, of the plan, the details of the plan? Um, well, the, the father of what I would call the geostrategy of the Marshall Plan, uh, George Kennan, who you see second from the um, uh, right. Um, on your right here, uh, Undersecretary of State for Economic Affairs, uh, Will Clayton, um, for perhaps one of the um, greatest forgotten American diplomats, I would argue that Clayton should be considered um, not just the father of the World Trade Organization, but the father of the European Union. It was Will Clayton who made the integration of um, uh, Western Europe uh, economically and politically into the centerpiece of what became the, the Marshall Plan. Um, on your right, you will see um, General Lucius Clay, the military governor in Germany, not part of the State Department, not formally involved in the creation of the Marshall Plan, but General Clay deserves enormous credit, in my view, for helping to reverse our disastrous occupation policy in Germany. That was the so-called Morgenthau Plan, named after FDR's Treasury Secretary, Henry Morgenthau. Um, his plan instituted in 1944 was designed to dismember and de-industrialize 
um, Germany effectively to reduce it to a, a pasture land. And Germany had never been in its history self-sufficient agriculturally. By the time we get to 1947, this is producing a humanitarian, moral, and geostrategic disaster because it is playing into the Soviet hands. And um, Clay, in my view, deserves more credit than anyone for reversing this policy and hel helping to make um, the integration of a revitalized Western Germany into the industrial engine of Western Europe. Um, senator Arthur, Arthur Vandenberg on the right, a Republican um, uh, senator um, from Michigan, a one-time isolationist, um, President Truman was faced with a hostile Republican Congress, and there's no way that this plan ever becomes legislation without Senator Vandenberg, who sacrifices his own presidential ambush ambitions to push it through a very skeptical Congress. And of course, Gen General Marshall himself, not so much an architect of the details of the Marshall Plan, but truly a master synthesizer and a um, salesman. Um, uh, after General Marshall's uh, iconic speech at Harvard in June 1947, introducing the uh, plan, um, President Truman's primary political advisor, Clark Clifford, goes to him and says, you know, I think this thing has uh, uh, legs, could be good for you. I think we should call it the Truman Plan. And President Truman, with his rare combination of uh, modesty and political shrewdness says, don't be ridiculous. He says, anything bearing my name going before Congress will twitch a few times, go belly up and die. <laughs> Said, but even, quote unquote, the worst Republican could not vote against a plan named for the general. He was very wise. So General Marshall makes a speech, as I said, in June of 1947 at Harvard. It's a very short speech. It's only about 1,400 words. It's extremely low key, and it's quite vague. Uh, and this was um, strategic on General Marshall's part. First of all, he wants to make sure that the Europeans um, take ownership of this plan. It can't be something that's imposed on them by the United States. So he requires the Europeans to come to the United States with a proposal. His one condition is that they do it in concert. This can't be 16 separate, as the Americans call them, shopping lists. They had to decide how they were going to utilize their combined resources most efficiently. So that meant they were going to have to begin to integrate economically and indeed politically in order to have some institutional mechanism for uh, cooperation. Also, he was quite careful not to lay out any geographic boundaries for the Marshall Plan. That is, it would be open to all European countries, including, in theory, the Soviet Union. Now, um, I should emphasize that the State Department never had any intention of uh, providing a dime of um, uh, financial aid to the Soviet Union. At this point, the State Department had very detail, detailed plans all laid out as to how they were going to provoke Stalin into rejecting the plan just in case he showed any real interest in um, joining. Now, Stalin himself was, was torn after um, uh, reading Marshall's um, speech. On the one hand, Stalin was very much um, a Marxist ideologue when it came to economics. That is, he actually believed that we had arrived at the final stage of capitalism, that the U.S. economy was uh, about to collapse. In fact, the um, U.S. GDP growth rate in 1946 was negative 11.5%. And the reason for that was, was pretty clear. That is the collapse of government spending um, uh, after the war. But uh, Stalin believed that the American economy was about to collapse so that the Americans would need to uh, give billions of dollars to um, uh, Europe in order to bail out its own industry. And Stalin felt, well, if I can get billions of dollars of aid from the United States without any geopolitical conditions to attach, attach to them, I'm certainly interested. But he had three very compelling reasons to reject the Marshall Plan. Um, first, um, the Marshall Plan made clear that the Americans were not going home. Uh, they were going to remain fully engaged in Europe economically and politically, and he predicted militarily. And he was, of course, right about 
that, and that disturbed him deeply. Second, his spies in Washington and Moscow told him that the revival of Western Germany, of course under American tutelage, uh, was going to be the centerpiece of this um, economic plan, and he considered that a mortal threat um, to the security of his um, uh, newly expanded uh, empire. And third, and most importantly, he was deeply concerned that he would not be able to hold on to his own satellite countries in Central and Eastern Europe. The Czechs and the Poles in particular reacted with undue enthusiasm to this offer of aid from the United States, and Stalin had to read them the Riot Act and make clear that they would not um, participate in this um, scheme. You'll notice that the um, Subtitle of my book is Dawn of the Cold War. Um, and of course, most Cold War historians date the Cold War to 1945, but I actually argue that it's not until General Marshall's speech that both sides, the US and the Soviet Union, come to the conclusion that they have to um, pursue their interest unilaterally. That is, there's no longer any basis for cooperation. And indeed, after General Marshall's speech, Stalin, who is very pragmatic when it comes to foreign policy. He's not um, a Marxist uh, ideologue on this. He doesn't care what brand of socialism countries in Central and Eastern Europe follow as long as they toe the line on foreign policy. But he begins cracking down on all the coalition governments in Central and Eastern Europe. And there were coalition governments of sorts. Of course, they weren't um, uh, independent, but in Romania, Bulgaria, um, uh, Hungary um, and Poland, you did have um, coalition governments of sorts. And importantly, in Czechoslovakia, you had a legitimate one that was uh, elected in relatively free and fair elections in 1946. Um, it was comprised of about two-thirds small-D Democrats, one-third um, communist. You had a, a democratic president, a communist um, prime minister. Um, Stalin decides he can no longer uh, afford the risk of having such governments. So the, cold, the, the map, political map of Europe really begins changing dramatically after um, the creation of the Marshall, Marshall Plan. You'll see the political map of Europe in 1943. It's really a geographic jumble of alliances. Fast forward to um, 1949, and now you see the familiar Cold War map. Um, with a very clear geographic divide. The um, uh, countries to the east, the Soviet blocs, the countries to the west, the Marshall states. Um, the uh, seminal event, um, very important um, for the U.S. domestic debate about what, um, whether um, to legislate the Marshall Plan, comes in February of 1948, when Stalin precipitates a communist coup in Czechoslovakia. This has an enormous galvanizing impact on wavering Republicans in Congress. Um, they realize that unless the United States takes some dramatic action um, very quickly, Stalin is going to repeat these tactics further and further um, west. So in April of 1948, um, the Marshall legislation, uh, Marshall aid legislation is passed. Um, Stalin reacts uh, immediately by instituting uh, a, a blockade uh, on Berlin. Um, this blockade, as you all know, is famously overcome uh, by a combination of a heroic um, allied uh, airlift. And although um, uh, we tend to forget about this today, we instituted a counter blockade that had a devastating impact, not just on the East German economy, but on the um, uh, Soviet economy. So in May of 1949, uh, Stalin ends the blockade simultaneously with this, as if to rub in the extent of the American victory. Um, the uh, Western Allies create the Federal Republic of um, Germany, West Germany. In September of 1949, Konrad Adenauer is elected the first chancellor of the Federal Republic. And in October, Stalin creates his own Germany, East Germany, the German Democratic Republic. And at this point, the borders of the Cold War conflict in Europe are effectively frozen for 40 years. This is a good time, perhaps, to 
step back from the narrative and just look broadly at what the Marshall Plan was economically, how it worked or how it didn't work. Uh, how much money was involved? It was $13.2 billion over four years. This was 2.6% of the recipient country output, 1.1% of um, US output. To put that in a contemporary perspective, if we were to launch a Marshall Plan today of equivalent size as a percentage of our economy, we're talking about $800 billion. Um, when you add on military aid uh, above and beyond that, you're getting pretty close to uh, a trillion dollars. So this was a significant um, commitment of resources. Um, there was a, a, a very large and rapid recovery and output in Europe between 1947 and mid-1952 when the um, uh, funds uh, ended. Um, output in, in the Marshall States increased by 60%. And the early eulogistic accounts of the Marshall Plan um, simply reflexively ascribed that um, uh, growth to the Marshall aid. It wasn't until decades later that economists began looking at this skeptically, asking, well, what was the source of the Keynesian miracle here? How did it actually work? And so they began running their regressions, and they asked questions like, well, was it because the Marshall aid helped these countries import more? They were all short of dollars and uh, gold, so was it that fact that they could import vital goods? that um, uh, produced the recovery? Uh, the answer is no. It did indeed help them import, but that would only account for a fraction of the extraordinary growth you saw in these countries. Was it that allowed for more necessary government spending in these countries? The answer, again, is no. Clearly no in this case, because government spending as a percentage of GDP actually fell in the Marshall countries over this period. So what was it? There are two things in particular that I would highlight. First, um, George Kennan always emphasized that the primary impact of the Marshall Plan was going to be psychological, to convince the Europeans that we weren't going home as we had after World War II. Um, the aid would be important, but mainly as a social stabilizer to help these governments implement difficult structural reforms to revive production as quickly as possible. But he wanted it to be a four-year plan, again, to show the Europeans that we were um, committed to this um, long term. Um, it didn't, however, work on its own. The French and the British were um, adamant that they could not participate in a, this American... Uh, integration scheme in Europe without certain guarantees from the United States. The French in particular argued very persuasively, hey, you're going home, you're pulling out all of your troops. What are we going to do in five years' time uh, when Germany cuts off our coal supplies? Or more likely, the Soviets, who will have taken over all of Germany, cut off our coal supplies. So if we're not going to be economically self-sufficient, we can't defend ourselves, you're going to have to take responsibility for our security. So the Marshall Aid legislation had gone through in April of 1948. A year and a day later, um, the um, US Congress passes the NATO Founding Act legislation. This is effectively the military escort of the um, uh, Marshall Plan. Um, now, you remember that the um, U.S. military and foreign policy establishment had wanted the Marshall Plan in order to avoid having to make <clears throat> military commitments in Europe. It didn't turn out um, to work um, quite that way. I argue in the, in the book that without NATO, um, the Marshall Plan would never have worked. To put that again in a contemporary context, consider Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, we have already spent $210 billion on reconstruction aid in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we have almost nothing to show for it geopolitically. $210 billion is over 50% more than the totality of Marshall aid in current dollars. So it's not as if we haven't tried using reconstruction aid for geopolitical purposes. But in both cases, Iraq and Afghanistan, we failed to provide those countries with um, internal and external security. And without that, I would argue, um, massive economic aid for rehabilitation is um, hopeless. Um, the second thing I would um, emphasize is the critical importance of our reversing our occupation policy in Germany. Um, many um, uh, Soviet 
critics of the Marshall Plan um, and revisionist historians in the United States have argued that the Marshall Plan was a, a boondoggle for American um, exporters to allow them to dump their surpluses on Europe. It was nothing of the sort. One of the primary ambitions of the Marshall Plan was to rebalance the European economy. It had become totally dependent on capital goods imports from the United States. So one of the aims of the Marshall Plan was to put Germany back in its traditional position as the primary capital goods provider for Europe, again, to rebalance the European economy. And it was enormously successful in that regard. So um, finally, to wrap things up, uh, I want to put, put this all in a more contemporary context and ask what we might learn about the um, Marshall Plan in terms of current um, geopolitics. So fast forward to November of 1989. Historically, political upheaval in Germany has had enormous reverberations throughout Europe. November 1989 is no exception. When the Berlin Wall falls, the alliances that the Soviets had created, the Warsaw Pact, begin crumbling immediately, uh, whereas the alliances that the United States had created as part of the Marshall Plan, in particular NATO and the European Union, are as popular as ever. The newly liberated countries in Central and Eastern Europe are clamoring to get in. Uh, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev is particularly concerned about one of these alliances, NATO, um, he begs the um, uh, Bush administration, Bush 1, um, not to um, consider expanding NATO eastward towards Russia's borders. He argues that this will inflame nationalist sentiment in um, uh, Russia and set back his um, political uh, reforms. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Um, now, there are two logical directions in which the United States could have gone at this point in terms of uh, NATO expansion. Um, and one, one of them was laid out by George Kennan, who's now in his 90s and still commenting on foreign affairs. Um, Kennan begged um, the Clinton administration not to go forward with NATO expansion. He argued, hey, this is what we fought the Cold War for, to get to this point where the Russians would abandon this um, deadly ideology, we would end this ideological conflict. Let us see if we can reach a common understanding with the Russians about what independence and sovereignty will mean in Central and Eastern Europe. Um, the other coherent position was effectively the Republican position, the Dole Gingrich position in the 1994 contract with America, which basically argued that Russia will always be Russia, we owe it to these newly liberated countries in Central and Eastern Europe to provide them with security. We need to expand NATO and we need to do it robustly. Um, Bill Clinton, being Bill Clinton, chose a third option. Um, and that was to expand NATO without paying for it. He argued that NATO had no enemy. So this was not going to be a costly exercise for the um, American public. Of course, these newly liberated countries in Central and Eastern Europe wanted into NATO for one thing, and that was protection against Russia. But Bill Clinton denied it had anything to do with Russia. Um, Kennan condemned this. Expansion began in 1999. Um, he wrote that um, Clinton's strategy, quote-unquote, would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. It will inflame nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, restore the atmosphere of Cold War to East-West relations, and impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. Um, Richard Holbrook, who was um, the State Department's um, uh, most uh, robust supporter of NATO expansion, argued that Kennan was talking nonsense. He wrote in 1998, and I quote, the United States can have its cake and eat it too. 
Years from now, he said, people will look back at the debate and wonder what all the fuss was about. They will notice that nothing has changed in Russia's relationship with the West. Now, I would argue that it is difficult to be more wrong than Richard Holbrook. And what was, what was the source of the problem? Well, Vladimir Putin, like um, uh, Joseph Stalin, when it comes to foreign policy, is really a pragmatist. He's a ruthless pragmatist, but he's a pragmatist. Here is the problem. Here is a topographical map of Europe, and you'll notice something strange about it. I put north on the bottom. This is basically how the world looks from Moscow. And if you look at Russia's western border, what you see is thousands of miles of plains, unprotected by bodies of water or mountains. And not surprisingly, Russia has historically always faced devastating invasions from the west. Napoleon went to Moscow from the west. Hitler went to Moscow from the west. So um, this is, the Russians have always seen um, the expansion of the Western powers towards their borders as a, a threat. So um, uh, Vladimir Putin has made no secret of the fact that his primary geostrategic aim has been to restore the old Soviet political and economic space, and he has always considered NATO to be the biggest threat to this. I think the most um, telling comments he made about it were in 2016 private comments that he made to former Israeli leader Shimon Peres. Peres recounted this conversation in an interview he gave with a magazine just before his death. And this is what he said um, Putin told him about the collapse of U.S.-Russian um, relations. Putin said in a quote, what do the Americans need NATO for? The Soviet Union doesn't exist. The Warsaw Pact was dismantled. Why do they need Georgia in NATO? Why do they need Romania in NATO? Do they think I didn't know that Crimea is Russian and that Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine as a gift? I didn't care until they needed the Ukrainians in NATO. And what for? I didn't touch them. They wanted to go to Europe, meaning the EU. I said, great, go to Europe. But why did they need them in NATO? Um, these are comments, I would argue, not of an ideologue. They are comments of a ruthless pragmatist, as I said, and not even particularly ruthless by Russian standards. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev, who is no friend of Putin's, um, supported the annexation of Crimea. He supported the occupation of Georgia. This is really a Russian view, whether we like it or not. We have good reasons not to like it, but we have to reckon with it. Um, so coming back to the Marshall Plan, I think the broader historical lesson is this. We remember the Marshall Plan today because it was visionary, but it was also hard-headed. And it was successful because it was hard-headed. What do I mean by that? If we had defined success to include, say, bringing Poland and Czechoslovakia into the Marshall Plan, we would have failed because we would have had to go to war with the Soviet Union in order to do that. And one of the primary aims of the Marshall Plan was to defend our interest in Europe without going to war, without having to rely on the military. So great acts of statesmanship like the Mar Marshall Plan are not just grounded in idealism, they are grounded in realism. And this, I believe, is a lesson we need to relearn. Thank you all for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. Who has the first question? I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences they're listening to Ben Steele speaking about his book, The Marshall Plan. One thing that you talked about um, in Germany, and uh, you didn't mention Japan or any of that because mm. we're talking about Europe, um, but after, after the war, one of the things that in, in the rebuilding is that um, it seems to me that the middle class in Germany wanted its life back again that it had and that, that they were then uh, amenable to this whole process if they were under security to move forward. Um, and when I, I look at, at what's going on in India and China, if you look forward, you say that the middle classes that are being built there, are they something that can be relied upon after, if there's, if there's any war devastation? We hope that that doesn't happen. But is that kind of the basis for rebuilding? Because other countries have tried to be rebuilt, and they, they haven't done it either, right? You, you, you make an excellent point. Um, George Cannon, 
who had in 1947 been a strong supporter of the United States creating um, uh, an independent sovereign Western Germany, by 1949 actually becomes a, a, a skeptic on the subject. And he argues that, um, look, the German public will never um, uh, tolerate um, a split in the country, a division of the, the country. If we want to end this occupation successfully, we're going to have to try to find a way to unify um, the country. Of course, we didn't do that. We did create our own Germany. And decades later, um, George Kennan said that what, that was one of his biggest errors of um, judgment in Germany, that in fact the West German public although they certainly didn't want their country um, uh, divided, were far more concerned with um, uh, their own standard of living and, and revitalizing um, um, uh, their, their own section of the country. And the middle class mm -hmm. was e essential um, uh, to that. Um, so I think you're absolutely right in emphasizing that the, the creation of uh, a broad middle class that has a strong vested interest in um, uh, solid, sustainable um, uh, economic growth um, is necessary, but not sufficient for peace. Right. Excellent. Good. Um, you, spoke of this, oh. uh, you spoke of the psychological impact on Europe of the U.S. Marshall Plan in terms of uh, letting the Europeans know that we're going to stay around. What was the, can you say more about that? And also, what was the psychological impact on Stalin, the Russians, of our Marshall Plan in the same, in the same vein? Well, uh, as, as I emphasized earlier, Stalin was deeply concerned about it because he had believed um, that the U.S. would follow Roosevelt's policy. That is, withdraw all the troops, go home, disengage from, from Europe. So he was quite taken aback by this um, new strategy. It was totally um, uh, unexpected um, to him. Um, the Western Europeans, um, as you can imagine, their perspective was um, a, a mirror image. They were terrified of the Americans disengaging because they remembered what happened the last time the United States did that, walked away from the League uh, of Nations and, and turned to isolationism. Um, the continent descended into a, a, another world war. So they strongly believed that they needed um, the United States as a, a guarantor, not just against the potential for Soviet aggression, but the potential for an unmoored Germany, again, um, uh, threatening um, uh, peace and stability on the continent. So NATO was created not just to keep the, the Russians out, but the Americans in and the Germans down. Is there any uh, uh, evidence that the Germans uh, are also really, really among their politicians, very strongly in favor of the European thing so that they are no, seen as Europeans more than as Germans uh, due to their history? Yeah, um, as you can imagine, the, the Germans were very strong supporters of the American integration ideas. Konrad Adenauer believed it was absolutely essential for Germany to demonstrate that it believed in European integration as a way of mitigating fears on the rest of the continent that Germany would become uh, aggressive again. Interestingly enough, it was the French who had to be dragged into this kicking and screaming. Um, they were, um, it, at least until 1946, almost as brutal occupiers of Germany as um, the Soviets were. They were ripping up factories, bringing them back to um, uh, uh, France. It was the United States that had to put a halt to this. Um, and um, uh, Dean Acheson um, uh, made clear to the French in 1949, hey, you know, this, this thing is happening. We're, we're going forward with this. We're creating an independent um, West Germany. Um, if you're not going to be on board for European integration, what you're going to see is a German-dominated um, Europe. It's in your interest to grasp hold of this, this thing and take leadership of the um, uh, integration plan. And that's indeed what the French did. Once they realized that 
there was nothing they could do to, to stop it, um, they were quite determined to become the leaders of the integration movement. George, George can always count on me to ask a question, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I, I have a theory, and I wonder what you think about it. Um, until um, George W. Bush, the son, we had always had a president who had military experience. So then we had George, the son, with no military experience, and we had Clinton with no military experience, and we had Obama with no military experience, and now we have John L. Trump with no military experience. And I think this personally has made a great deal of difference in how we approach these. We are more willing to invade countries and then destroy them and leave, and et cetera, et cetera. So I just wonder if you, if you think this has anything to do with what we are foreign policy. I, I, I think you raise an important point. Um, uh, we, we, we haven't in recent decades been very good at thinking geostrategically um, uh, about the world. Where are our vital interests? And where can military force be used successfully, and where do we have to look for alternatives to military force? As I've tried to emphasize, the Marshall Plan was not uh, a purely humanitarian exercise, although without the humanitarian element, it wouldn't have become um, uh, policy. Um, but it was first and foremost a geostrategical exercise. In other words, how do we defend our interests without having to rely on the military? And I, I, I think, tragically, we've um, perhaps lost the ability um, uh, to think long-term and geostrategically uh, uh, about when to use the military and when to use um, alternative tools of um, diplomacy. And we have, we're blessed with so many um, uh, alternatives um, in this country. I personally think that the Trump administration is making a grievous error walking away from our alliances in the, in the world. So here, here is what I would say is a charitable interpretation of the Trump administration's America First approach. And that is, okay, all these things that we did in the 1940s, creating these alliances, these institutions, these rules, they may have been appropriate for that period, but they're not appropriate now. And they're holding us back. Um, we're better off doing bilateral deals with everybody because we're, we're big and we can bully them and we can squeeze more out of them. This has it entirely backwards. The United States was never in a better position to pursue an America first policy than we were in the late 1940s when we dominated the globe economically and militarily. Now we do not represent half the world's output. We represent less than a quarter of the world's um, output. So we are now reaping the benefits of those alliances that we created in the um, 1940s. Um, let me read you um, an absolutely beautiful prescient quote from a Republican senator, Henry Cabot Lodge, writing to Senator Vandenberg in support of the Marshall Plan in October of 1947. He writes, the recovery of Western Europe is a 25 to 50 year proposition. Can you imagine thinking in those terms? We don't do that anymore. And the aid which we extend now and in the next three years will in the long future result in our having strong friends abroad. We're here, we do. He was right, and now we're going to give it up, uh, and we're going to encourage our allies to comparison shop and consider whether they can get better deals from our non-democratic rivals like China and Russia. I can't think of anything that's less in our interest than that sort of strategy. What drives Truman to seek his own path away from the FDR? Uh, is it his interactions at Potsdam with Stalin? Is there other things that are going on in there? Why does he go a different way? There's n there's no doubt that um, uh, Potsdam was a wake-up call to him. I talk about it in the book. He he went to Potsdam being extremely optimistic um, that he he when he could finally sit down with Joseph Stalin, um, they would realize that they have all these great um, uh, common interests and they'd be able to cooperate. Um, he came home recognizing at least that it was not going to be that easy. But at that point, he had still not s sought 
to, to separate himself um, um, from FDR. It was the evolution of circumstances that convinced him um, that we needed to move from a so-called one world uh, uh, approach that we had under FDR, that we were going to march forward into the um, post-war world in cooperation with the Soviets to a so-called two-world two, two um, world. In other words, one in which the, the Soviets had their effective sphere of con control and, and we had ours. Now, I would argue that had FDR lived, he would have become a, a cold warrior as well. He would have adapted to circumstances. The thing is that I think he would have been a much less effective cold warrior than Truman because he was not a good delegator. As you know, he was effectively his own Secretary of State. He disdained the um, uh, State Department. He generally surrounded himself with, with um, poorly qualified people. His old friend from Hyde Park, Henry Morgenthau, for example, who created this monstrosity of an occupation policy in Germany. Whereas Truman, for all his faults, um, showed extraordinary judgment in the um, people he empowered to make um, policy. People like um, uh, George Marshall and Dean Acheson and, and George Kennan and Charles Boland, his uh, ambassadors uh, um, uh, in, in Europe. These were truly exceptional people. Um, he also had a, a capacity to cooperate with people with whom he disagreed, in particular Senator uh, Vandenberg. FDR, I don't think, would ever have had the ability to cooperate with um, uh, Vandenberg. Vandenberg. He had utter disdain for Vandenberg. He knew that Vandenberg wanted his um, uh, job. Um, and he never failed every opportunity to, to put, put in the knife and make it clear to Vandenberg that he would never become president. Truman would never have um, uh, behaved like that. My question has to do with how did the American public react to this? You talked about all the leaders, understand, but over time, you know, initially and 20 years later, how, how about the American public? This, this was a remarkable, not just education initiative, but a public engagement exercise. Um, uh, Marshall himself said he campaigned for the Marshall Plan, although he never called it the Marshall Plan, never. Um, as if he were running for president himself. He traveled all over the country to meet with um, um, local community leaders. Um, uh, religious leaders were engaged, uh, labor um, leaders, uh, farmers. It was a remarkable public engagement exercise. Um, hundreds of people gave testimony before um, uh, the House and the Senate. Um, Vandenberg was particularly um, angry about public critics of the Marshall Plan um, that never said what they would do differently. And he actually threatened to subpoena people who raised their voices in public without specifying what it was that they wanted to see as an alterna alternative. So this was um, sort of public participation in foreign policy making at its um, uh, most ambitious. It was quite a remarkable exercise. And um, th I think the American public was results oriented uh, about the Marshall Plan and it did show signs of success quite early. Um, not all of these signs of success um, are due to the Marshall Plan. I talk about it in the book. For example, the winter of 46 and 47 were particularly brutal. Um, so this had a devastating impact on the economies of uh, Western Europe. Even if there had been no Marshall Plan, there would have been some form of recovery um, going into 1948. But there's no doubt that the Marshall Plan um, uh, significantly accelerated it. And when the public saw that it worked, they were, they were very proud of the initiative. Um, same thing with the Berlin Airlift. Is there any evidence that the fact that the United States, although it suffered from World War II um, and World War I, but did not suffer nearly as much in terms of loss of people, and no territory, all that, have an influence on their ability to decide to give their largest or be generous or whatever to Europe to help them recover? That is, if, if, if 
the Soviets, for example, uh, with all their losses, were not thinking about helping uh, Europe or Germany or anybody. So. Right. I think that's part of it, but the, um, the, the, the primary thing explaining it was fear that if we disengaged from Europe again, as we had after World War I, it was inevitable that there was going to be a World War III, and it was pretty clear who the adversary was going to be. It was going to be the um, uh, Soviet Union. Um, so it was first and foremost... Um, uh, reckoning with the lessons of isolationism in the 1930s and a determination to move away from it. Um, there was a genuine recognition that the United States was doing something that was, in, a, in effect, against its founding ethos. You go back to George Washington's right. farewell address, um, uh, telling the nation that we should not entangle ourselves in um, uh, foreign alliances, particularly um, uh, entanglements in, in, in Europe, um, that um, those, those were, were deadly, um, they're not our business, and it's going to be harmful to us um, to get involved in them. Um, but there was a realization by the late 1940s that the world had changed. Um, it had become much smaller. Vandenberg um, gave up his isolationism after Pearl Harbor mm -hmm. um, because it was Pearl Harbor that convinced him that the United States was no longer protected by two oceans, um, which was a valid perspective in the late 18th century, but it wasn't a valid um, uh, pers perspective in the 20th century. So technology had changed, the, the world had become much smaller, and of course the United States was a much um, uh, different country. It was a, a much uh, stronger country, it was a more self-confident um, uh, country, and it had seen the cost of um, disengaging from um, Europe. But I found quite striking um, in writing the book and going through the archival material the number of times that um, Truman and figures in the State Department would reference George Washington's farewell address mm -hmm. um, and debate it. You know, are we really doing the, the right thing? Do we know what we're, we're doing? When it was sold to the public, like his question, was it sold with the fear? I mean, that, that, or, or was it sold um, with, with, with the generosity or a combination? Or, yeah. It was sold to the American public primarily on the, the grounds that we needed, uh, we needed to be generous in our, our, our own interest because we wanted to avoid war again generally. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, George Marshall tried to avoid naming the Soviet Union mm -hmm. um, in his um, uh, public uh, pronouncements. But... The approach to the legislature was very different. So one thing you notice um, is how Marshall's rhetoric changes dramatically from the spring and the summer when he would talk about the humanitarian crisis in Europe and the economic um, uh, roots of that crisis. When you move into the autumn, now Vandenberg is shepherding him through the legislative process, um, tutoring him in how to get this thing through a hostile Republican Congress, and suddenly his rhetoric changes quite dramatically. And he himself was never entirely comfortable with it, but he understood that he had to follow Vandenberg. And now the anti-communist um, uh, rhetoric becomes much stronger. Um, Marshall starts talking about how we set the dividing line in Europe. It's not just Stalin setting a line, we're setting a line. We're determining what parts of Europe we can defend mm -hmm. and what parts of Europe we can't defend. And unfortunately, we have to write off to the um, uh, Soviet sphere. So um, they go in, in two different directions, one for engaging the public and one for engaging Congress. It was Senator Joseph McCarthy a supporter? Uh, I mean, he, obviously, he took this fear of the Soviet Yeah, he wasn't a big part of the debate. I mean, the, 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 the sort of leader of the opposition, as it were, was, was Taft, um, who had been the leader of the opposition of Bretton Woods. But even um, his opposition was, was half-hearted. Um, uh, Herbert Hoover was still very influential, and Hoover had, you know, big doubts about uh, elements of the plan. But Hoover emphasized st strongly that um, um, the United States had to take assertive action to revitalize Germany. 
Um, and he was absolutely um, right about that. And he, he was um, influential in helping to bring in some um, uh, skeptical Republicans. Great. All right. Uh, time for one more question. Great. Given our current isolationist tendencies, how do you see the world 10 years from now? The, the world? Well, the U.S. and the U.S. The US? space in the world, place now, in the world. I'm extremely concerned about where we're, we're headed. I would like to tell you that this is just um, you know, a, a temporary bout of distemper in the United States, and we're going to all get over it and go back to quote-unquote normal. But I don't see any evidence of that. Um, I don't see any evidence from the Republican Party that they want to re-grasp the mantle as, as the most reliable guarantors of the multilateral trading system of America's security alliances around the world. I don't hear that. The Democrats seem to be um, totally focused on domestic um, policy issues. I don't see any of them talking about the importance of the liberal order that Democratic presidents were so instrumental in creating, in particular um, uh, FDR and um, uh, Truman. So um, that leads me to question where, where we're going to be after Donald Trump. Um, and I, I'm not yet seeing the, the sort of comforting um, uh, evidence um, that we're, we are recognizing as a nation that we, we might be on the wrong path. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Essential, essential history at an extremely crucial time in, in, in our you know, movement towards the future that we don't know where we're going, right? So um, thank you very much, and it's uh, you know, time to end another event in the Commonwealth Club's 117th year of enlightened discussion. <laughs>